Good morning. I'd like to start this morning with a question. What is it about us, and maybe it's just our culture, maybe it's just a thing in the Northeast or in northern New Jersey, but what is it that we always assume the worst? Have you noticed that? I mean, things are pretty bad in our world. I get that. But, you know, I think as Christians, and I think you have to have been a Christian for a couple of decades to really appreciate this, any time and every time that something goes crazy in our world, it's the apocalypse. Now, I'm not saying these aren't the last days, and I'm not saying that the Lord, well, hopefully, is coming very soon. Amen? But I am saying that we should never assume that the worst is yet to come. I think a lot of Christians have a worldview, and it's biblical to have some semblance of this worldview, but they have a worldview that things are going to get bad, really bad, and then the Lord comes. And that's because they are going to get really bad, and then the Lord comes. The question is whether they're going to get bad now and not get good again. And I can't answer that question. I think a lot of pastors try to, and we have sort of a natural bent towards assuming the worst. But I would like to suggest to you today, as we get into Acts, into the book of Acts, we find ourselves in chapter 25, that it's wrong to assume that the worst is yet to come. Because there's something you need to understand, there's something I need to understand, there's something we need to understand, and it's this. Nothing can thwart the will of God. Lord Heavenly Father, Help us to have faith that believes you're working through and in all things. In the darkest things, though you are not the authors of war, the author of wars or the author of suffering, that we do a good job of bringing on ourselves as human beings. And you allow us the freedom to make bad choices, and the consequences of those choices oftentimes cause many to suffer. But we also know that in all things you are working for the good of those who are called according to your purposes. We know that your plan is unthwarted by any power in this world, including the spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. There is simply no decision that's being made today by wicked and evil men in our own country or throughout the world that is thwarting your will or interfering with what you've ordained should happen. And for that, we can be grateful and trust that you know all things, and we can hope in all things, and we can believe by faith that you are working all things for the best of your will on this planet. Help us to have faith and to assume and to know that you can be trusted and that the best truly is yet to come. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I know that today is a day in our world where we find ourselves looking around and reading the newspaper. And I know that today we we live in a country that we don't recognize in many ways, and I, I, I know that things are really bad. I know they are. But you have to know that God wasn't taken by surprise. That even four to five years ago, God knew the cycle we would go through and the things we would be enduring and He has a plan, and that plan is working for your good. Now, this morning, we're looking at Paul's appearance before Governor Festus. 
And next week, we'll look at his appearance before King Agrippa II. And while we've been looking at Paul's defense before all of these different governors and and, and authorities, last week we looked at his appearance before Governor Felix. But as Paul appears before these authorities and these powers, his primary objective is to share the gospel, as we've seen. And he will, and we'll see that today. But this morning, I, I want us to understand something about Paul, that he had a promise from God. Do you have a promise from God? Say amen. You have a promise from God. In fact, you have many promises from God. I mentioned one in our opening today, that all things are working together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That nothing can separate you from the love of God. These are promises in God's word, and I encourage you to read Romans chapter 8. But here's the thing. If you know that God's will will not be thwarted, if you know that God's plan is in force, if you know that God is working on your behalf and through your life, what in the world are you worried about? Paul understood that. And so Paul was once again accused of rebellion by the Sanhedrin, we'll see. But I want to catch you up a little bit. Paul had been in protective custody in Caesarea for the past two years. God was in control. Portius Festus had been appointed in in Antonius Felix's place in 60 AD. This man, Portius Festus, was considered a just ruler and a persuasive politician. He did later die of natural causes after only two years of rule, but during those two years, the area of Judea enjoyed a very capable and effective ruler over them. Well, he was the only procurator to have died in office, interestingly enough. We don't know exactly why or how, but you're always suspicious when someone who is apparently healthy dies in office, aren't you? Who knows? This was the Roman world. And sometimes effective and capable politicians meet their end because of corruption. I don't know that, but I suspect. Anyway... The previous governor, Felix, had left Paul under house arrest in order to court favor with the Sadducean Jews of Jerusalem, that is, the high priests and those politicos that lorded their authority with Roman support over the Jewish people. And then we read in verses 1 through 5, in chapter 25 of the book of Acts, the three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. This is not the first time. In fact, this is the second time in Caesarea that Paul has been tried for these trumped-up charges. But we learn there, they presented charges against Paul, and they urgently requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there if he has done anything wrong. Now, this is just politics as usual. This is just the judicial system working as it is designed to work. Paul had been taken from Jerusalem because his life was being threatened, and now he's being held in Caesarea, as we've seen. But the chief priests and the members of the Sanhedrin, they brought these charges against Paul before Governor Festus while he was in Jerusalem. You see, the governor 
had traveled from Caesarea to Jerusalem just three days after he arrived in the area, in the province of Judea. What is he doing? What do politicians do? What do leaders do when they take power? Well, he was seeking to shore up his political support by immediately visiting the very powerful and influential Jews of Jerusalem. He, like his predecessor, wanted to court favor with the Sadducean Jews of Jerusalem. So what we have here is politics, as usual. The Jews presented their charges against Paul and requested that he be tried in Jerusalem. Now, why do they want him there? Well, we're told. See, the Sanhedrin had conspired together to kill Paul, but their conspiracy had been discovered. And so Paul, under cover of night, just a a few hours after the conspiracy was uncovered, this is going back about two years now, was brought to Caesarea for his own protection. They had been unsuccessful in having Paul punished, uh, and they were unsuccessful in having him killed. And this is over the last two years. So they once again conspired to kill Paul as he was being transferred to Jerusalem. Now you might be thinking, well, the worst is yet to come. I mean, these people are certainly going to be successful in killing Paul. I mean, they're powerful. They're influential. They're corrupt. But I'm here to tell you that God's plans are never thwarted. Amen? So it doesn't matter how many people are trying to kill Paul. It doesn't matter how many politicians are stacked against him. God's will will be done. Amen? Now, the governor agreed to hear Paul's case in Caesarea once he returned. So, we pick it up in verses 6 through 7. We're then told that after spending 8 or 10 days with them, that is in Jerusalem, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. Now, when Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem (coughs) stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. And then we read, then Paul made his defense. Now, this is just a summary of the trial. We don't have the notes from the trial. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. And that begins to reveal to us what those charges were. These Jews, they presented their case there. Paul was once again summoned to appear before his accusers. He has appeared before his accusers several times over the last two years. And each and every time, they're unable to prove any charges against him because it's a hoax. Because it's not true. It's fake news. And because they can't prove it, they continue to try just to use a smear campaign and just to try to damage Paul and possibly through corrupt means either have him killed or have him punished. But to have him eliminated would be their goal and they're willing to do this by any means necessary. Very Machiavellian. No surprise, Things haven't changed very much in our world over the last 2,000 years. So, I guess the moral of the story is be careful what news you listen to. Because it's amazing to me, having grown up in the 70s and the 80s, and having watched responsible journalism during that time, it's amazing to me that today in our world, clearly journalism has picked a side. And I thought they were supposed to be unbiased. But they're not. And the world isn't. 
because it's corrupt. We understand that, right? So all is lost? Expect the, expect the worst? No, no, no. God's plans will not be thwarted. So, they brought many serious charges against Paul without providing proof of their accusations. Now, Paul proclaimed his innocence before Festus. This is really the first time that Portius Festus has had an opportunity to hear Paul's case. And he declared that he was innocent of their charges against him. And the charges break down in this way, in verse 8. Heresy. He was being charged with teaching things that were false. Teaching against the Jewish law, it says in verse 8. So that's heresy. Now, why the Romans would care about that is, it's beyond me, but that was one of their charges. Then, they charged him with desecration, which was defiling the Jewish temple. Now, the point is they're building a a straw man. They're building a straw man argument. They're building a case that says, you see this guy? He teaches things that are false, and he defiles our temple, and they're leading up to the last charge of rebellion. Because what they're trying to convince the Roman authorities of, and especially and specifically the governor, is that Paul is a rebellious sort who's going to cause problems and riots. And because he does this, and the Romans don't want that kind of thing happening in this province, they're trying to sort of suggest subtly that even though they can't prove these charges, it would be best for everyone if they just got rid of this guy. And they've even mapped it out. You you don't have to find him guilty because Roman justice couldn't find him guilty and didn't find him guilty on several occasions. Just transfer him to Jerusalem and we'll take care of the rest. That's the plan. Okay, so you're with me? Say amen. Rebellion. He was being charged with trying to overthrow Rome through rioting. And that is a serious charge. And that's one of the things that the Roman authorities would have been concerned about. Okay, so let's continue. We pick it up now. In verse 9, Governor Festus now asks Paul if he would agree to be transferred to Jerusalem to be tried there. You see, this is the easiest solution. And I don't know whether or not this man uh, knew what they were up to. Probably not. But if he could just give them this favor, do this one thing, they would be in debt to him. And politically speaking, that's what they were asking for. It was within his power to do so, but Paul had to agree. If he could do that, then the problem goes away. And, of course, the Jews are more... uh, available to have him killed if they bring Paul to Jerusalem. So you understand the plan, right? So we read in verse 9, Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Well, after Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you will go. You know where Caesar is, right? In Rome. What did God tell Paul? That he would go to Rome. Are God's plans being thwarted? 
No. Not even when these Jews are trying to have him killed. Not even when he has corrupt politicians in control of his fate. You see, what you and I, what we need to do is realize there is no power in this world that can thwart the will of God. And once you understand that, you won't be, as I like to say, one of those chicken little Christians where the sky is falling every single time something happens. Listen, I love biblical prophecy. And we'll be spending more time in future months studying prophetic books. Because it's important that you understand where we're heading. But you have to be very, very careful when you're studying prophecy. Because for many years, biblical teachers have tried to predict what would happen, only to end up with egg on their face. In World War I, and even in World War II, the church in America and throughout the world came to the conclusion that they were in the tribulation. But it didn't work out that way. And as a consequence of that fabrication and speculation, the church, and specifically prophecy within the church, lost all of its credibility. Because what they said was going to happen didn't happen. I like to use this example. I was over at the Bible house over at, well, I guess it used to be over there at um, Hawthorne Christian Academy, or right next to the church. And I was in there and I saw this discount bin and this was probably in the early, no, it was earlier than the 2000s. I don't even remember when it was. It might have been the 90s. But I remember seeing, no, it was actually the early 2000s. I remember seeing in the discount bin a bunch of paperback books with Saddam Hussein's face on it. And the book was teaching that he was the Antichrist. In the discount bin, why wouldn't you just burn those? Obviously, someone got it wrong and wrote a book about it. I'm sure they were very happy for that book to disappear. I've heard predictions that the Lord is coming back in 88, in 89, in 98, 99, 2000, 2012. At least the Mayans thought that that might be the end of the world. And I've heard this over the years, and I've come to this conclusion. You and I, we just don't know. But don't assume the worst is yet to come. Because God's plans are never thwarted. See, when a pastor repeats something over and over again, that's when you say, amen. I've got to train you guys. You've got to get a little bit more Pentecostal with me. We'll work on it. We'll work on it. So Governor Festus, he's asking if Paul would agree to be transferred. Again, wanted to grant that favor. And here's the reason. He had just assumed authority over the disgruntled Jews of Caesarea. They were very unhappy. He needed the political support of the Sadducean Jews of Jerusalem to try to smooth things over. He couldn't take the chance of causing yet another riot by releasing Paul, especially when he was brought in to quell these things. He wanted to distance himself from this potential problem, if at all possible. And by the way, that's what politicians do. They never take responsibility for the problems they cause. They blame everyone else for the problems they create and run as fast as they can in the opposite direction. Well, he was likely not aware of their plans to kill Paul as he was being transferred to Jerusalem. I don't think he was. But in that case, that's what would have happened. Well, Paul refused to be transferred, made a formal appeal to Caesar as a Roman citizen, which was his right to do. He denied that he had done anything wrong to the Jews. He professed his innocence, 
And he was willing, he said so, willing to be put to death if they could prove that he had committed a capital offense, and of course they couldn't, and he hadn't. Now, he was unwilling to be placed in their custody because they had provided no proof of their accusations. We live in a world today, and it's sad, where proof is unnecessary. In fact, you can just make things up and promote them, and the media and social media will go out there, and they'll present it as fact. Two or three years will go by, and when it's proven to be false, they don't even cover the retraction. We live in an age where, where smears and in, in innuendo and insinuation rule the day, which is why it's so very important that you and I tell the truth. We have to tell the truth about who Christ is and about what's really going on in our world. And when you see something, they oftentimes say, when you see something, say something, right? We hear this all the time, especially during the times of terrorism. If you see something, say something. If you see something, say something. If you see a lie, tell the truth. If you see someone saying something that isn't true, inform them of what the truth is. Don't allow yourself to be canceled, deplatformed, or silenced. Preach the truth of God's word and the truth that is in this world and the things we see and the things we know to be true. For after all, that is our responsibility. So, Paul, he knew that they were setting a political trap for him. He knew it. Remember, he had already been questioned by the military, the Sanhedrin, Governors Felix, and now Festus, and still no one could prove anything. He had the right to appeal to the emperor after a sentence or if charged with a capital offense, and he exercised that right. He was well aware of his right to appeal. Only first-degree murder, rape, or kidnapping was without appeal under Roman law. And, of course, many jurisdictions and states today seem to think that if you commit these crimes, you're out on bail within a few minutes. And we see our world falling apart because of the intentional undermining of our judicial system. That's, that's sad and a dangerous way to live. But God's will won't be thwarted. Amen. Well, Governor Festus, he adjourned Paul's trial, and he granted his appeal to Caesar. He's just happy to get rid of him. His counsel, he gathered with the counsel. These are the lawyers. They decide, well, what do we do? What, what, what does the law say we have to do? They agreed that Paul was within his rights as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar, and the governor was required by law to send Paul, all expenses paid, by the way, send Paul to Rome to stand before Caesar. Where did God say Paul would go? To Rome. And the decision actually pleased everyone involved in Paul's case. This was a solution that made everyone happy, and here's why. The Romans now had a just and legal way to extradite Paul as a Roman citizen. We can get him out of here. The Jews had now removed Paul's influence from Asia and Judea. Send him to Rome. We don't care what happens there. Paul was now able to follow the Lord's call to travel to Rome at their expense. He's happy. You see, brothers and sisters, what the Lord has promised to do, he will surely accomplish. Amen. And that's the lesson today. That's what we want to take home with us. That truth, evidenced by this account, tells us that God's will will be done. Or do you not pray thy will be done as it, on earth as it is in heaven? We've prayed that way probably most of our lives. And yet we never seem to actually believe it's true when we pray it. 
Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You've probably prayed something like that most of your life. When, oh when, will we believe it? It's true. God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So now, Governor Festus, he discusses Paul's case with King Agrippa II. Now, let me explain, because we read in verse 13, that a few days later, and notice the events that transpire. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. And since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. Before we go any further, let's just stop a minute and realize what's, what's happening here. Again, politics as usual. It's so amazing to me how the Bible records all of God's doings against the backdrop of politics. You realize that, right? Let me remind you. Moses grew up where? In Egypt, right? A part of that system. How about Joseph? Where did Joseph ultimately end up? A prime minister of where? Egypt. You remember Nehemiah? Do you, do you remember Ezra? These men were involved specifically among the Persians as it relates to Nehemiah and Ezra. But have you forgotten Daniel, who was a statesman in the court of the Babylonians and also the Persians? Have you forgotten this? Have we forgotten this? That God has his men and women surrounding the seats of power, and he works all things for his good, our good. So if you think that somehow God's lost control of this situation, you're wrong. You're wrong, and you need to know that. Am I the hopeful optimist? No, I'm a realist. God is in control. Amen? So when I think of those men, I think, wow, Joseph was on the inside, Nehemiah, Daniel. All of these individuals were right there where they needed to be because God had placed them there. So, I believe that's true today. I really do. But as we look at this, let's take a moment and reflect. You see, King Agrippa II and Bernice, this is his sister, by the way, arrived in Caesarea to welcome Governor Festus to his new position. This is very common when people take power, and it was common then. King Agrippa II, let me tell you a little bit about him. He was the son of King Agrippa I, and he was born in Rome around 27 AD. He was the brother of Bernice, who, he, uh, who he's traveling with, and also he's the brother of the former governor, Felix's consort, common law wife, if you will, who we met or, and discussed last week. Her name was Drusilla. This man is on the inside of Roman power and authority in Judea, and the Middle East, or at least Palestine, as they called it. Now, the emperor Claudius had made him superintendent of the Temple of Jerusalem in 48 AD. So he's in control. This is the kind of man you want in your back pocket. He wields power. And when people have power, they find their way into the courts of kings and governors. Have you noticed? What's even more important these days than power which you can receive from an office or an appointment, is influence, which this man also had. Now, Claudius later made him governor of Chalcis in 50 AD, so this man has had many positions within the Roman government. 
He was later raised to the rank of a king and made a governor and a tetrarch. So he has climbed that ladder. But of course, his name is Herod. Is it any surprise? So he lived a shamelessly wicked life, and he was accompanied often by his sister, Bernice. And I'll get to that in just a minute. You see, Bernice was the eldest daughter of Herod Agrippa I. And she was married. Are you ready for this? You, you think that uh, these shows on television, these horrendous reality shows are bad? She was married to her uncle, Herod, king of Chalcis, after the early death of her first husband. She was incestuously involved with her brother, King Agrippa II, with whom she's traveling. And after the, this was all after the death of her second husband in 40 A.D. She later became the mistress of Emperor Vespasian, and then to Emperor Titus. Talk about Matahari. You're talking about someone who has used herself and her body to climb her way into power. This is someone who has no scruples. This is someone that has no morality, has a seared conscience, and is at the seat of power right next to her brother with whom she's having a relationship. So there you go. There you go. You understand. So their arrival in Caesarea did not necessarily bode well for Paul. In fact, if you were a prophecy teacher at that time, you would come to the conclusion, wrongfully, you would come to the conclusion that Paul was done for. After all, King Agrippa II and Bernice, these siblings, well, their great-grandfather was Herod the Great. Remember him? He had ordered the death of the innocents when Jesus was born. Their great-uncle, Herod Antipas, had ordered the death of John the Baptist Their father, Herod Agrippa I, had ordered the death of James, the brother of John. They later joined the Romans, later on, at the outbreak of their final war with the Jews. These were people that had no love for Jews. They afterward moved to Rome, where Agrippa II died in about 100 AD. So you're talking about people who truly are at the seat of power. They were the last living descendants, incidentally, of Esau, the brother of Jacob, also known as Israel. So here's the truth of this matter. These people were wicked. They had the power. They had the influence. And yet they had no ability to thwart the plans of God. Amen? You know, I can think of a power couple like that that was once in the White House. People thought they were unstoppable. I'm not going to say anything else because God won't let me. (laughs) Governor Festus begins to explain the circumstances surrounding Paul's case. Look back again at verse 14. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. And he said, there is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went up to Jerusalem... The chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over any man before he has faced his accusers and has had the opportunity to defend himself against their charges. And when they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. 
And when his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. I love the fact that that's mentioned there. It just goes to show you Paul used every opportunity to share the gospel. Even this, this governor remembered that he was talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Pretty cool. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. And when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Let's just stop there for a minute. Now listen, Paul had been left as a prisoner for two years by his predecessor, by Felix. And you might have said, Paul has forgotten. God has forgotten Paul. He said he was going to Rome, but it's been two years. Did God forget his promise? Is God slow in fulfilling his promise? I think we come to that conclusion. We give God a certain amount of time. We say, well, six months. If God doesn't answer the prayer, then I guess he's not going to. That would be wrong. And the chief priests and the members of the Sanhedrin, they brought these charges against Paul over and over again. And the Roman law, again, required that Paul face his accusers and be afforded an opportunity to defend himself. And every time he did, he successfully did so. I believe this governor was committed to maintaining Roman law. He seems to have had a reputation as a just man. And as I said, he sort of died mysteriously in two years. And you know what happens to just politicians. But he also wanted to gain favor with the Jews for understandable reasons. And as a recently appointed governor, he was extremely careful in handling Paul's case. And that's a good thing. But God is in control. The Jews from Jerusalem had presented their case before Governor Festus. And now we get a recap of the trial, which we really didn't get. We just sort of got a summary. And we're told, as Festus begins to discuss the case with King Agrippa, we're told that Paul was summoned to appear before the accusers, that the Jews brought many serious but unexpected charges against Paul, and that they had some disagreements with Paul about Judaism. That's, this is the perspective of Festus. They had also disagreed with Paul's belief in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, Paul had been faithful to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ during his trial, and we'll see he always is. Next week, we'll see in detail how he shares the gospel with King Agrippa II. But for now, Governor Festus had asked Paul if he would agree to be transferred, and of course, he didn't agree to that. Paul had refused made that formal appeal, and Governor Festus had then adjourned Paul's trial and granted his appeal to Caesar. He's just catching up King Agrippa. Here are the facts, and now we know how Festus felt about this case. It seems pretty clear on the merits he didn't think they had a case. So he's trying to figure out, what do I do with this guy? But politics are influencing justice. I know that's really, really hard to imagine that politics would ever influence our judicial system. That's called sarcasm. As you know, I speak it very well. Okay, so finally we get to verse 22. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. And Paul is going to be given yet another opportunity to reach one of the most wicked men in Judea and in the surrounding area. In the, with, he's going to speak to someone. I've already described their lifestyle. He's going to speak to someone so wicked that you and I would blush at the mere mention of their name. 
now that we know how they lived. And you're going to see Paul go for it. But for today, I, I don't want to get there yet. We'll save that for next week. I want us to understand something. King Agrippa requested an opportunity to hear Paul's case for himself. You think God was in control of that? Say amen. How is that possible? How is that possible? With God, all things are possible. So why do we assume the worst? I mean, this man, by the way, this man, King Agrippa, was a student of Jewish culture and custom, and he was very curious concerning Paul. Many people were. He was well-known. Paul was an intellect, and he was extremely well-known among the Gentiles and the Jews. He was extremely interested in hearing what Paul had to say in his own defense. Sometimes curiosity, you know, really gets people to open their hearts. Right now, people are very curious as to what the Bible says. One of the questions you're going to get is, what does the Bible say about what's going on with Putin? And very unwise Christians will write books with Putin's face on it, which will end up probably more than likely in that same bin I saw the books with Saddam Hussein's face on it. God is in control. I caution my fellow pastors. I'm I'm not trying to paint a rosy picture of the world we live in. It's just you don't really know what you're talking about if you think you can predict the future. Unless you receive a prophecy, unless your name is Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, maybe John the Baptist, I, I would be wise, as the Bible says in Proverbs, even a fool is wise when he keeps his mouth shut. So I won't be doing any prophecy updates, and I won't be doing any of that. I will teach the books of prophecy so you can recognize the signs when they happen, but not until then. Brothers and sisters, in this case, Governor Felix agreed to arrange for Paul to speak with this very wicked man, King Agrippa, the very next day. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow for you, but I know that you will most certainly be given an opportunity to share your faith in the near future. And when you do, Make sure that the takeaway that people have after they listen to what you have to say, after they ask questions like, what does the Bible say? Make sure that at a minimum they have something to say like this. He talked about a dead man named Jesus who he claimed was alive. Lord Heavenly Father, we know The gospel is our message, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we'll be remembering in earnest in just a few weeks is the purpose. It is the gospel message, and it is our purpose to share that message with the world. We also know that just as Paul would go to Rome, that we will be and go wherever you want us to be, and whatever you want us to be, and wherever you want us to go, we know that your will will never be thwarted in our lives. May we have the confidence to speak boldly as we ought to speak, to make known the truth of the gospel, as Paul prayed when he wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 6. May we always do what you've called us to do, and may we give up on trying to be prognosticators, and may we simply be proselytizers, fancy words, but words that mean rather than trying to predict the future, we make available the truth of eternity. For all that will listen to the gospel message, for all that will listen to the truth that Jesus came and died on a cross for our sins and rose again on the third day, for all that will listen to that truth that 
He's coming again to judge the living and the dead and that we need to put our faith in him to receive him as our Lord and Savior, to become sons and daughters of God because we've confessed our sins in repentance and given our lives to Jesus Christ who died and rose again. Lord, this is our message. This is our passion. This is our call. May we never forget it. May we not be distracted. And may we never doubt that your will will be done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.